it's like getting to know somebody really well. You know, the fiddle's like your your lover. You know them a little better after 35 years than the first two. You know, I was a little awkward in the beginning. <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. Carl Jones and Aaron Marshall are a husband and wife. Aaron is an accomplished fiddler and a composer of great fiddle tunes. Carl is a fine songwriter, and he plays the fiddle on occasion when he's not backing up Aaron on the guitar and banjo. Carl and Aaron live in the hill country of southwestern Virginia, near the town of Galax. But in December of 2014, they came to Olympia to perform a concert and play for a square dance. I caught up with them afterwards at a house party, and while everyone was busy playing tunes downstairs, I set up my microphones inside the walk-in closet of the master bedroom. It was a great space in which to have a conversation, surrounded by dresses and coats and shelves stacked high with sweaters and hats. Here is part one of our podcast, featuring my conversation with Aaron Marshall. My name's Aaron Marshall. I was born in Victoria, B.C., and I've spent about half my life there and traveled around quite a bit. My current location is Galax, Virginia, but my story with the fiddle goes back to my Canadian roots and... My mother's side of the family's from Ontario, and my father's side of the family's from BC. So I was raised in British Columbia, but my mother's side of the family had so many string musicians, string bands, and dances would happen at my great grandmother's house, and people would stay over because of curfew. And there was an African string band that played regularly in the area. My great uncle remembers them. And my great grandfather played the fiddle and always hung it on the wall in the living room. He was uh, had the nickname Pops because uh, he had a bad temper. I think they called him Popcorn sometimes because <laughs> of that temper. But anyways, he always played the fiddle. Um, there was a lot of music on that side of the family. But I didn't grow up getting to meet them I grew up in British Columbia, just a couple blocks from the ocean. And on the West Coast, we have strong fiddlers, fiddle traditions as well. But I didn't experience them when I was quite young. No one knows where I ever saw a fiddle, but I wanted to play fiddle from an early age. So it's kind of a mystery. It's like it was sort of built into the DNA or something like that. Because um, around five, I started asking to play a fiddle. And um, there was none around. My father played in a lot of bands. I grew up in a musical family, but no one played the fiddle. My father sang and played in country bands. My mother sang in the kitchen. But um, I think at some point they gave me a ukulele, but it didn't pacify my desire to play the fiddle. And by eight years old, they finally listened to me and, and put one in my hands. And so I've been playing now for about 35 years. And... I feel like the fiddle is is just so much of my being. Like I I feel it's my true path, I guess. And often I feel like it chooses the path I take in life and that 
it feels like the fiddle is playing itself and I'm just sort of along for the ride. And it's taken me to so many places um, where I would have never been had I not been able to play the fiddle. So tell me about the first fiddle that came into your life that really was like, wow, this thing has has a way with it. I mean, maybe the very first instrument, but it, was there a place where you... Tell me about those fiddles. I think the first one is, is really special, no matter what the quality is. I remember the first day I, I had a violin and just opening it up. And I, I remember I was eight years old and it was the feeling of complete amazement and awe. And I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> so I remember just, you know, opening it up on the floor and just going, wow. You know, so I still remember how exciting that was. I can't say I remember too many things of when I was eight years old. I also remember seeing my great-grandfather's uh, stand-up bass, and it looked like, you know, a skyscraper, you know, from the perspective of a, a little girl. So those those are early instrument memories for me, and I know I have uh, recordings to this day singing with my dad when I was like two and a half. So I think music was just always around. I played... I think I had a German violin for about 15 years, but I was really searching for something special. And I, it took me a while to, to find the instrument that is the one I play today. And I've played it for, I guess, almost 20 years now. And um, I was working in violin shops. I worked in two for about 11 years. And you'd think that working in a violin shop, that you'd have a really easy time finding a fiddle. But I was really, really picky. And I I had a really hard time um, finding just the right one. I kept telling myself I had to to loosen up my, uh, be more flexible in my standards, you know, because uh, violins are like people. They'll have good traits, and sometimes they have a trait that's not so good. They might honk on one string <laughs> or something or have a buzz or or just the, not, not the quite the right sound or timbre um, that you're hoping for. And... One day, I think I'd been working in Old Town Strings for several years in Victoria, B.C., and this man came in with a violin that was made by the Scottish maker John Smith, who um, moved to Canada from Scotland around the time of the early 1900s. That My violin was made in 1936, and at the time he brought this in, it had only been in the hands of that one owner and he said I'll tell you the truth he said I never paid attention to what this violin sounded like I just picked the one that looked the best I was a kid and <laughs> I just that's all that mattered and it is it's a beautiful violin it's got a beautiful one piece back on it and it's lovely the varnish and everything but it's the sound that got me I knew instantly that this was the violin for me and I guess he hadn't really played it but he'd held on to it for most of his life, and um, I just played it and thought it was just the most beautiful instrument ever. And after he left and decided to leave it in the store to be sold, I just promptly walked up the stairs and went to one of the owners and said, I want to buy this violin. And they said, you sure? You haven't even tried it. <laughs> you know, don't you want to take it out on approval or something? You know, typically when you buy a new violin, you can take it out and try it for a week or two. But I knew that instantly, like in five minutes. And um, 
yeah, it's still the one I play today. Somebody I, I interviewed just recently talked about violin having kind of three things that you look for, but also one might have this and not. And one was, um, is the quality of the sound. The second was the responsiveness of the instrument. And the third is how it projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that covered a lot of it right there. I thought that was a pretty good way to think about it. And uh, so... so Try to describe the tone of this, this voice, this violin. I call this violin my chocolate fiddle because it has a really smooth and even tone. It's very well balanced and uh, it's really smooth and sweet. It's not too loud. I think a lot of people today make a mistake by going for volume in an instrument. This is not the loudest violin, but it has such a beautiful sound. And I also think that if you spend a lot of time with the same instrument and you just play it and play it and play it, it's like they acquire some intangible something, you know, it's like the soul of the instrument. You know, I actually, it's proven that the molecular structure of the wood changes over time in an instrument when it's played a lot. So um, there's some scientific backing, but I know this instrument so well. I can throw its voice if I need to. I know exactly how it responds. And it's very easy to make it speak. I notice when you play, something that impresses me is you're very comfortable with the violin in your hand. You don't bring your, your wrist up to hold the neck. So you don't seem to be supporting it with your left hand in the way some fiddlers do. Mm-hmm. You hold it more in a way say, more a trained musician would, which gives you more flexibility in terms of what you're doing on the neck. But you're not holding it, clamping it under your chin very much. You seem to be very comfortable with it. And the violin seems to some people, and sometimes even to me, as an instrument that is, is, it's not a natural kind of thing to do with the body. And people have had difficulties, serious difficulties, and have to go to therapies and so forth to be able to play the instrument. You, It just seems so natural in your hands when I watch you play. Have you ever run into that where playing a lot, you, you, you either develop you know, sore under your chin or you develop anything? Or is it just always been something very natural for you? No, it hasn't always been. It's a challenging instrument, position of the instrument and the body. And I think over the years, I've tried to make really subtle changes so that it was more natural, so I wasn't locked into any one position. I think even if you have a really good way of playing the instrument, if you're always in that one position, I think you can hurt yourself. So I do, I try to stay loose and I'm sort of distributing the weight in different places at different times. I try to keep in moving. My Everything can move, I believe, and my neck can move, my head can move. and I, I try to make sure that nothing's locked. And um, when I teach, I teach the same thing. I try to, to work with people so that they release tension because that is a real inhibitor when you're playing music. You know, you really want to just express yourself and not have to think about... Um, the wooden box and the hairy stick in your hands, you sort of have to get beyond that. So I try not to, when I'm playing, think about the physicality of the instrument so much. And it's just taken many years to to make um, really small uh, adjustments over the years so I could um, could play a little freer. I think that's, uh, I think it's important. Yeah, 
it's like getting to know somebody really well, you know, the fiddle's like your your lover. You know them a little better after 35 years than the first two, you know. I was a little awkward in the beginning. <laughs> You feel guilty when you play another fiddle? You feel like you're being... <laughs> I prefer to play my own fiddle. It's true. <laughs> Let's talk just for a minute about the bow. It happened to me that I played the fiddle for many years, and, and then it dawned on me. I was slow to come to it. Other people know this sooner than I did, that the bow really was important and is possibly as important as the fiddle. And when did that happen, and then how did you get your bow? You know, I wish I had a really good bow. I really don't. I'm playing on a, a fairly basic carbon fiber bow. Now, in the 11 years I worked in violin shops, I played some pretty nice bows. And the problem is I have a bit of a champagne taste for them. And there have been a few bows that I played that really played themselves. I remember there was one beautiful hill bow. Now, the hill... Um, company, you know, they had many, many bow makers. So it varies which one, you know, made the bow that you might try. But um, that particular bow, I can't remember which maker it was, but it was $4,000. And it made my old instrument sound as different as a new violin, like one of the better violins in the shop. I almost bought that bow Sometimes I wish I had, instead of a new violin. It was just so incredible. And uh, I've played a few bows over the years that, that really inspired me like that, that just worked with me instead of against me. Many more inferior bows will have bounces and wobbles, and they won't be weighted properly, or they, they might be too stiff or too soft and it can be very difficult to work with it's like beautiful art meets a consummate tool and playable art so i'm still looking for that dream bow <laughs> but in the meantime these uh the carbon fiber bows are they play really well and and i don't have to worry about them at, you know the the wild dances we do sometimes <laughs> and, and it's more consistent than wood i think wood sounds warmer when you find a really good bow there's a warmth to wood that is lacking in the carbon fiber but they the response is is great in some of those sticks so that's what i have right now so give me a little bit if you can about what is this uh, the fiddle in the way you understand it as again this medium it's a it's a medium to do a lot of things enchant but also create social context create social rituals help people find that wife or husband, possibly, anything you want to say in this, sure. what you have seen, and any specific story you can give me. People often talk about the difference between the fiddle and the violin, and, um, you know, the instrument's the same, but sometimes I think of fiddle music, it will go to some extent the same for classical, but more so for, for different types of fiddle music is its dialects. Everywhere you travel, there's a different accent. And sometimes I feel like I'm a linguist for fiddle styles. At first, you notice the broad differences in styles, you know, the bigger accents, just like speech. So you might notice that people talk different in Ireland than they do in the southern states, than they do on the west coast of Canada. Then 
you start to get more immersed in a certain region, and then you start to notice all these sub-styles or sub-dialects. You might notice that they talk differently on the west of Ireland in Clare than they do up in Donegal. And the more you pay attention and are a really good listener, the more you hear the subtleties in those different accents. And wherever there's a different speech accent, there's a different style on the fiddle. So I definitely enjoy that you know, when I play old-time music today. I've been fortunate to live in a few different states. I've been in Virginia, in Galax, Virginia, for six years, but also spent a lot of time in West Virginia, Central West Virginia, visiting 80- and 90-year-old fiddlers and singers. And I spent some time in Kentucky as well. And now we're right on the North Carolina and Virginia border, and it's really one of the meccas for old-time music. And there's lots of regional styles and lots of different fiddle dialects, and it's not strictly running across state lines by any means, but there are certain areas where where you'll hear... Um, uh, different regional styles of the fiddle so and often when you hear classical music it's an older form you know people often enjoy listening to classical music where the composers were living in the 1700s so it's quite it's quite different the kind of music that they listened to back then it's like going back really far in history though a lot of the fiddle tunes are are very very old too they could be hundreds of years old as well I just think it's really interesting with the folk traditions, you're getting a lot of the rural people and their dialects. It's not high art form always. It might be kitchen music or real community music, grassroots music, porch music, but um, it's very special nonetheless. So tell me a little bit how it's used in dances. I do think it's important to play for dances, the tradition of dances and fiddle music goes back so far, and it's kind of exhilarating. It's very different than I play when I'm alone or in a small group. And, you know, a lot of people think fiddle music is all about dance music. It's not all about dance music. There's a lot of pieces that are just listening pieces or solo fiddle tunes that weren't even meant to be played with other people. But definitely dance music is a big part of it. And uh, it's just, it's so thrilling to get to play for a whole room of people that are, are out there bonding and learning the dances on the floor. And I love their, the sense of accomplishment when you see them figure something out and the appreciation. They just, they're so uh, good to the musicians in the band. Old time music has such a strong pulse to it. And... You know, it often anticipates, it often comes in early, so that that helps move the dancers on the floor. We, as a fiddler, we jump in, usually a happy early on the phrases, and that makes the dancers start moving, so by the time they hit the downbeat, they're already flying. There's certain things you can do uh, to get what I call the lift in the music, you know, the spirit that, um, that helps uh, move the dancers on the floor. So... I like things that are a part of tradition, and, and playing for dances is something I hope to always do. And it's nice because you have all generations represented. 
I know in Galax, Virginia, you have people learning to flat foot dance, a type of step dance, from age five, and they're still doing it in their 90s. We played with uh, a great flat foot dancer a few months back, and he was 91 and still dancing great. So that's pretty inspiring. It's a big part of of, of old-time music, the African-American influence on that style of fiddle music, making it very driving and also kind of bluesy, mixing with um, the Scots-Irish, you know, fiddle music that's come overseas. You have English ballads. You might have German roots for some of the tunes. I mean, it's a real melting pot. But um, all of that created certainly a very danceable style of music. I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, during the 1950s and 60s, and the first fiddle tune I ever heard was on a record album. The name of the tune was Bonaparte's Retreat, although I didn't know its name until many years later, after I became a fiddler myself. The tune was part of a composition by Aaron Copeland and performed by members of the New York Philharmonic, under the baton of Leonard Bernstein. Aaron Copeland discovered the tune on a 1937 Library of Congress field recording of a Kentucky fiddler named Bill Stepp. And Mr. Copeland included the tune pretty much note for note in his music for the ballet Rodeo and gave it the simple title, Hoedown. Well, it's a great fiddle tune, even if played by an entire orchestra. And when I met Aaron Marshall, I heard her play a version of the tune that, although quite different, left a lasting impression with me. Here, then, are the two versions of Bonaparte's Retreat, one recorded by the New York Philharmonic in 1960 and one recorded by Erin for her CD, Tune Tramp.
we often associate creativity with uh, originality in a logos age because time is understanding as being sequential. And so therefore, this is something nobody's ever done before, whether it's a lick in banjo or let's say in bluegrass or in jazz. You have this idea that I've done something. I've interpreted this music in a way it's never been done, where old-time music seems like so much of it is replicating what is perceived to have been done outside of time at some place. So it has much more um, attraction to trance. It, mm-hmm. There's an inherent Definitely sort does. of desire for trance. And talk about that from your perspective. And did you ever – I had one experience in Scotland where suddenly I did go through the veil. I was just playing this tune over and over and over in this stone house up in the highlands. And and without me suddenly being aware, the fire leapt up. I was in this other place. It passed like that. Of course, as soon as I became conscious of it, it went away. However, I experienced it all the time as a fiddler to some degree and certainly mm-hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning, those wonderful moments. So uh, explain what that what I'm even talking about <laughs> in your words. I wish I could. Um, yeah. Those yeah. moments that you remember that just stood out, give, set it set it in a place and time. Hmm. I think uh, sometimes you lose yourself when playing music and playing the fiddle. And I remember one time I went, this is a long time ago when I was much younger, and I went to um, the Valley of the Moon fiddle camp down in California. And back then I didn't realize it was a lot of Scottish music, which I didn't know much of then. And I went there, but I was having an amazing time. You know, I think I was probably playing uh, maybe 15 hours a day or something. But, you know, I really struggled with all these uh, Scottish fiddle tunes, and um, they seemed so foreign. I hadn't heard that style much before. And uh, I stopped carrying my fiddle case around because I was playing so much music. But anyways, one night... And I'd just been playing and playing and playing. And it was quite late. And something kind of snapped in my conscious brain. You know, that's the, the kind of brain that gets in the way. When people are learning, it's the naysayer, I call it. It's that part of your mind that's always telling you you can't do something. And if you get really exhausted or if you really run run yourself to your limits, you can get past that brain, but it's very tenacious and um, it's it's hard to get past it. But anyways, this one night, I guess I'd gone for days playing music and all of a sudden I just had this epiphany, you know, and like the, the fiddle took over and it seemed like my fingers were just playing without uh, my conscious mind having anything to do with it. It was like I was uh, just a secondary observer of what was happening. I've had this experience many times where I felt like I was just sort of watching what was happening while I played the fiddle and I I wasn't really part of it. I guess that feeling of it playing me. And all of a sudden, I swear, and I hadn't been drinking, (laughs) that I could play any tune. All of a sudden, my fingers would just fall in place and I could play all those tunes. And it was um, an experience I'll never forget. It was kind of an out-of-body experience. Is there a dark side to this at all? Has the fiddle, or is that is that just the preachers who are in competition for the shaman role in a society? I haven't experienced, uh, you know, a dark side per se with the fiddle. But, you know, I've often wondered, like a lot of the old timers would put a, 
a rattle, a snake rattle in the fiddle. And that was supposed to keep the devils out of the devil's box. And I, I sort of imagine that might be something that goes back to an African-American influence again. Um, rattles of all kinds are very popular in African music. I've never heard anyone talk about this, but here we have this rattle being put into an instrument and you're playing along and every now and then you'll just hear that little tss. <laughs> I have to take it out when I go in the recording studio. But I do have, uh, you know, the old snake rattle in my fiddle. And a lot of people felt that kind of warded off evil spirits and stuff, the older. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. So often it was believed that uh, fiddle music was not desirable and it wasn't good to play it. It was associated with drinking and dancing if you go back far enough and it wasn't always popular with the church. It's interesting to see that there were things like these rattles that could make it okay. Keep the devils out of the devil's box. And um, that's, uh, that's quite an interesting... I have some African folklore if we go back and check into that. There's a story that J.P. Fraley associates with this, the tune uh, Wild Rose of the Mountain. It was a fellow that played in a band and played for dancers and was much taken with a young woman. But because he was in the band, he couldn't dance with her. And, and he would watch her go from one young man to another. And she was quite the flirt. And, and that's where he wrote the tune, I guess, this fellow, and called Wild Rose of the Mountain. And uh, so when you are fiddling, you're not dancing and you're not flirting. And, and I mean, it is a seductive instrument in that regard. And it's been associated with men for so long. There certainly were women fiddlers, but most of the people that uh, in the old days you hear about being fiddlers. So if anything you want to say about being a woman fiddler, is there anything about that? Well, I feel that um, there's a lot of support, of course, in this age for women playing the fiddle, and there seems to be more women playing than men these days. <laughs> I don't know why that is exactly, but there's a lot of women fiddlers. When I've talked to the 80 and 90-year-old fiddlers and singers, mostly in West Virginia, they told me that there was a time when it was a little more difficult. It wasn't always looked upon as a seemly thing for a woman to do because it was associated with drinking and dancing. A lot of women would play piano and church and different things like that. A lot of people would sing. But definitely there was a lot of um, women a generation or two back that didn't care and just were going to do it anyways because they wanted to. So <laughs> I talked to grandchildren of, of some great women fiddlers in West Virginia and found out a few things. Many of them played the fiddle and many of them sang and played the fiddle. That seemed to be very common amongst the older generation women fiddlers. Very, very strongly tied with vocal traditions. So that's quite interesting. But I think when there was a lot of people researching fiddle music early on, they were going to the fiddlers conventions and contests or more visible places where a lot of the men were. And I think the women were making a lot of uh, music but they weren't necessarily making that music in the same places as the men were. They were more often making music in the home or in the church in the southern states and not always competing. 
So I think men, it was more common for them to be competing at the fiddler's contest. So if that's where they did their research, they would report, gee, it's all men playing the fiddle. <laughs> so I think it's sense of place uh, plays an important part. And both men and women played a lot of music and was very ingrained in many aspects of their social life. So you're at Galax. What is contest fiddling? How do you, what do you think of contest fiddling? So set up what Galax is for somebody who doesn't know Galax. So um, we have a wonderful festival in Galax, Virginia. It's known as the Old Fiddlers Convention. And it's going to be 80 years this year in 2015. And it's run by the Moose Lodge. And a lot of the money for it is donated to charity. But uh, the festival draws over a thousand competitors and 40,000 people go. That's pretty good for a town of 8,000 normally. <laughs> so it's all about the Fiddler's Convention comes in early August. And uh, people really do come from all around the world. I've met people from France there and Japan and um, just all over. And it's an experience to go in the contest. Not everybody is crazy about playing in contests. And I'm not a, a highly competitive person, but I, again, that sense of tradition, you know, something that's been happening for 80 years. It's wonderful to, to be a part of the tradition. To me, it's not about winning ribbons. Actually, everybody who goes in the contest gets a ribbon. That's very generous of the moose. <laughs> and um, some people do it to get their camping money back because they give that back to you. Um, so a lot of people go in the contest. But uh, there's a big, huge yellow tent. And that's kind of very symbolic. I mean, like you've just, it's been there for decades and there's many paintings and drawings and they always feature the big yellow tent and one of my favorite parts is just to be lined up in there and everybody's talking and shaking hands and warming up on tunes and it's a little bit of a cacophony back back of the yellow tent and then you get out there and you have your two and a half minutes on stage and they actually flash a red light if you go over and you can be disqualified. I was once. <laughs> I played a waltz and it had three parts and I played it three times and I went just over the time limit and that was it. I uh, got myself ousted. But uh, it's an amazing uh, experience to play for the audience, which is huge. It's kind of like being at a big rock concert, but you play a fiddle tune and everybody's like, wow, you know, the audience goes crazy. And it's, it's an experience and it String bands play for two days. So you play, um, all the old-time bands play one night, and then the bluegrass bands follow, and then it switches the next night. And usually the contest for the string bands winds up somewhere around 2 or maybe 3 in the morning on Saturday night, and they give out the awards usually around 4 a.m., and it's like misty and foggy, and everyone's there with their you know, their coats on and their hoods over their heads, standing in the kind of fog, you know, waiting to hear what the awards are. It's it's quite funny. There's also a tremendous night earlier in the week when all the kids play. And uh, many of those kids will even win in the open contest against professional musicians. So there was uh, a kid who won 
guitar this year. He was in the top five, and he looked like he was about 10. So, And he's going against the best guitar pickers in the region, and there's usually about 350 in the guitar competition. So I think that really says how good the kids are who have grown up with music in their lives in that area always and uh, how good they are. Have you won the contest? I got second there once. <laughs> I felt pretty lucky to get to get that far. So It's called the Old Time Fiddlers Convention. It's the Old Fiddlers Convention, and they're very fussy about it, yeah. So it's the Old Fiddlers Convention. Mm -hmm. So there are mandolin, dulcimer contests. I've been there. There's bands. Folk song. Folk song, okay. Guitar, banjo. So what is it about the fiddle that commands our attention in a way that these other instruments and these other things that are just as important to the tradition, it seems to grab our imaginations in a way that no other instruments do? Maybe it's just, it's such a physical instrument. You see that bow soaring across the strings and you can just see every note happening I think that might be part of the appeal of the instrument. And it also, you know, they say it has the sound closest to the human voice. It has such a remarkable range. And I also enjoy just watching the fiddlers themselves. You know, every fiddler has sort of a body gesture that they do. They might lift their eyebrow when they play or they have a little, you know, sway or um, everybody has some little thing that they do and it's unique to their the way they play the instrument. I enjoy watching uh, just how people play it. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty unique sound. It does captures captures uh, people. It does capture people's attention. And do you know if anybody's ever been buried with their fiddle? No. <laughs> there are stories of um, people taking fiddles out of houses by a string tied around the scroll and burning them because they weren't supposed to play the fiddle. You know, their church might have told them they shouldn't play it anymore. There was a big movement, and often people have given up playing music like Melvin Wine, who I learned from, great fiddler who lived till he was one month shy of his 94th birthday. He was born in 1909, Braxton County. And he stopped playing music because of religion for probably 20 years. I mean, that and he was busy raising his family. But when he couldn't make a grandchild stop crying by any means, he pulled out his old dusty fiddle and played it for the child who was immediately captivated by it and stopped crying. And he decided it was a gift from God and, and continued to play, play it and played a lot of hymns on it and decided it could be used in a, in a good way. And it wasn't as, as bad as the church made it uh, sound. And he was a very religious man. Uh, so he kept playing. Have you heard that story about him where he, uh, some guy was hitting on a young girl? Do you know this story? Uh, at the dance. At the yeah, dance. he wouldn't play dances. And then he, he went up and he had said something to the fella and then the fella gave him a real hard time and then had a heart attack. I think that was, I think the man was using bad language. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, I think I think Melvin. he was using coarse language. I don't think it was Melvin that spoke to him. I heard him tell that story many times, but I sort of remember that this man was rough 
in the dance hall and he was using vulgar language. And I think a woman came up to him and said that he needed to stop swearing and using that kind of language. And I think he did one more time. I think, I can't remember what he said, you know, but anyways, he said one more cussing remark and was struck down dead. Yeah, he died of a heart attack, like right then and there. And did Melvin stop playing after that or stop playing dances? Is that how he associated that story? Well, he'd seen people killed at dances. I mean, dances in West Virginia in the early 1900s could be really rough. There were rivalries, you know. If someone came from a different county and was looking at your girl, it didn't go over well. Um, You know, they were outsiders, even though they might live really quite close. Um, Different things like that. Drinking. He didn't like drinking. And he'd seen someone run off with somebody else and ruined marriage and things like that. And he decided dances were not the right thing to to do. He didn't want to have any part in playing dances, even though he did when he was young. Most of us love birthdays. And before I ended my interview with Erin, she picked up her fiddle and told me a story that I think you will enjoy. Yeah, this, um, this violin of mine, it actually has the actual day it was made. So it says, made by John Smith, has December 17th, 1936. It gives the street where he was living at the time. He emigrated from Scotland to Canada. And it says 617 Furby Street, Winnipeg. And then it says late of Glasgow and Falkirk, Scotland. So there's a lot of detail on this label. You know, usually you just have the year and the country where a violin was made. Since uh, it had the actual day where it was finished, and who knows what that means. Was it the last coat of varnish? Was it when it was strung up? When the first note was played? But um, one year I decided it would be fun to have a, a party for my fiddle. And so uh, I had a bunch of people over, and it's December 17th is quite close to Christmas, so people came over. But what I didn't expect, I mean, it was really just an excuse to get a bunch of people together to play some music, but what I didn't expect was people brought uh, presents for my fiddle. So they brought those little ornaments you put on the tree in the shape of a fiddle, or some people brought music and gave it (laughs) to my violin, and we had a great night playing music and stuff and at one point I walked into a room and there was a bunch of people holding my fiddle up in the air and they were singing oh he's a jolly good fellow how's that let's <laughs> get play me a tune real quick we all play um play one act done <laughs>
Waltz, a tune I wrote this year called The Loman Waltz. That's not great. Thank you. For my friends, Kurt and Jody Loman. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information concerning this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us an email. And keep listening.